Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and today's guest is Damien Strange. He is a sound artist, multi-instrumentalist, an award-winning composer, conceptual electronic, and improvised electroacoustic works focusing on the African diaspora's stories and themes, often exploring surrealist and Afrofuturist ideas and unique impressionism. Damien is compelled to express through sound and poetry the beauty and resilience of the Black experience. Digging into a pantheon of ancestors to tell stories of triumph while connecting the past, present, and future. Damien has worked with such artists as J. Otis Powell and Shaw Cage and has been a featured performer on concerts celebrating the work of Thurston Moore and Henry Threadgill. He is a 2018 recipient of the ACF Creative Award and 2019 Jerome Hill Fellowship. Damien is currently the Director of Community and Belonging at ACF and lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with his wife, Karina, and their four-year-old, Ezra. Like any good nerd, he enjoys a good sci-fi story and has a soft spot for anything related to astrophysics. I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, Damien. Thank you, Karina Sean. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm happy you're here. Um, it's a, such an interesting way that life cycles in that when I was in high school taking post-secondary enrollment options at the university, I met you and you were attending McAllister College. That's true. Yeah. And just now in 2022, because of the mastery of online technology and social media, we got to um, cross each other's paths. And it is um, really an honor to witness the brilliance of the work that you're creating and, and your voice in the world. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. And um, again, I've, I've been witness to the work that you're doing, and I want to thank you um, for being such an important ally uh, in, in the work as well. Yeah, it's, I, it's something that I've said um, often um, in the, you know, the, the journey towards anti-racism is that it's, it's really going to come down to those conversations um, that white people are having with one another um, to, to get us to uh, to have progress uh, on this front. So thank you uh, for for creating this space for <laughs> those conversations. 
Yeah, well said. Well said, because I, I can't agree more about that, that white people speaking among white people, the white spaces that white people are taking up. Um, this is where the conversations need to start to change. This is not a black issue. This is very much a white issue. And uh-huh. and um, so, you know, work like your own and, and many other, you know, people in the world, you know, are, are waiting patiently for what white people to wake up, perhaps. And I, I guess that is the reason I, I'm framing this whole podcast as the the untold stories of well-meaning white people. And I wanted to start us off with that is like, what does that phrase do to you or land for you? Or what does it even mean to you? And let's, let's start there. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, a very interesting question. Um, I uh, grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, and at the time, D.C. was very much, um, as they nicknamed it, uh, Chocolate City. Um, my neighborhood was uh, pretty much um, all black. Um, my elementary school, um, pretty much through the t- through probably um, fifth grade, uh, was all black, and uh, that's just kind of what I knew. Uh, I went to uh, an AME church uh, in uh, African Methodist Episcopalian Church, and um, so that was kind of my experience. But then on the other hand, my great grandmother, who was my primary primary guardian for um, a great deal of my youth um, was a nanny for a white family. Um, and, you know, she had nannied for, I think, uh, towards the end of three generations of that family. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. And so they, um, in their way, uh, looked at her as family, um, as we often see sort of in um the context of you know post-slavery um you know black women taking care of white kids is uh, a theme that we can um well even before you know during slavery of white kids is kind of uh, one of the visions that we see of, of black women in um, sort of media um or we have seen and you know that was her reality um and that family yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to pause and just like let the audience really hear. We're talking about th- she nannied. You're talking about your grandma nanny three generations of the same family. Yeah. And so think about that, right? The the generational history. I, I know you've thought about that, Damien. I'm talking about to listeners. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the historical nature of that, even as you're speaking of insulin during slavery and then post of how the black woman was positioned to be this caretaker role of white families and, yeah. and was the emotional uh, landing post more for many, for many children that white, that doesn't even kind of register in a lot of white people's consciousness, even though that's historically true. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, throughout probably more of my college experience and maybe a little bit in high school. I went to a small um, private school in D.C. that was uh, where at the time I think it was the students of color were about maybe between 5 and 7 percent of, of the school, so a very small percentage um, of the school population, um, very similar to McAllister, uh, actually, 
Um, mm-hmm. And I think when I tell that story, a lot of people are still surprised, even though it is like, you know, it has been a common theme, theme in, um, in popular culture and literature. It, you know, You're saying white people have been surprised. White people, yes. Yeah, yes. let's clarify, because I <laughs> yeah. don't think black people no. or any person of color is ever surprised at hearing that story. Yeah. And yet white people are, which goes back to you telling the story of the family and well-meaning white people. So go ahead. Yeah, so so the family, uh, the McConaughey's and the uh, Kringles, uh, they, uh, you know, they did look at her, her as family. Um, I, my wardrobe, if you will, for most of my, um, you know, sort of elementary school through, I would say, middle school before I really started kind of making my own money um, was hand-me-downs from that family, um, you know, my everyday clothes. Um, And, you know, it pretty much consisted of, uh, you know, soccer, soccer jerseys from their, like, you know, soccer teams. Um, uh, I think I had, like, ski t-shirts from, like, lodges in um, New England. And uh, I know, I think there was a veil one once. Um, and mm. not even knowing what that <laughs> was that I was wearing and then button down shirts and like oversized khaki because the, the kid um, was kind of stocky <laughs> whereas I was very skinny <laughs> uh, but that you know that was those were my clothes like my everyday clothes and like um, school clothes you know that I was wearing that <laughs> on me um, and knowing where where that that came from now the family itself, again, very well meaning um, in a lot of ways. They um, they bought us a Christmas tree. Like every year, they would get a real tree. Um, it was like your family should have a real tree, um, and you know they, yeah, they they were very very much well meaning, um, but they're but they're still like sort of this this barrier. And now I would say that most of my experience with well-meaning um, white folks is that they they are they know that know in some way that there's a difference <laughs> or there's some sort of gap, you know, um, and they feel um, maybe I I always con- uh, attribute it to guilt uh, around you know their maybe their privilege privilege if they really understand that. Um, and then, so they're trying to make up for that, uh, in, in some way. And for me, a lot of times it is kind of an awkward way. Um, they're not exactly sure, nor are they like asking. There are a lot of assumptions made, um, Mm. that's, that's been my experience. Um, Mm. and I would say like, well-meaning could be that you have some, like a great deal of understanding about what's going on in the inequities uh, to being straight up kind of kind of racist but having a lot of guilt about your racism so it's not just the people who are say more educated about um you know things that can can act as well-meaning white folks there are some people who um, really have that genuine fear and ignorance that can behave as well-meaning white folks uh, Mm -hmm. as well so mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a spectrum there, um, just to, in my experience with things. Yeah. And I think you're bringing up quite an important spectrum that um, is nuanced in that, you know, 
I'm on the spectrum of well-meaning white person in that I didn't know that I was playing out a form of white supremacy in my in my narrative of life um, through exceptionalism, you know, having been yeah. born into a yoga culture and my worldview was very worldly. Um, and so therefore, I automatically identified with anybody else in America who was other. You know, I didn't identify with mainstream. And so I didn't know that for most of my life I was hiding in places and spaces of indigenous and black people and, and people of color and how that was benefiting me. But how I didn't know how to I didn't know I was hiding, I guess. So there's that spectrum where our friendships are really rooted in really good, healthy, yeah. conscious, Absolutely. you know, awareness to the black experience or to the African experience or to the indigenous experience and still unconsciously playing out whiteness. Absolutely. But then the other kind of more predatory, well-meaning white person that is starting to identify themselves more and more or that we're able to see and hopefully is like, has a lot of privilege and like what you're bringing up has guilt around it. And so there's an awkwardness. It's like they give and it's like kind of this obvious awkward that there's this huge social gap. They don't know what to do about it. And so they like, instead of asking, instead of like being on a human level saying, what do we do about this? It's kind of like this awkward, I want to keep my social status and, but show you that I'm also good. Yeah. And then all the stuff in between. Yes. Yeah. And I, I mean, to me that, um, that latter example, like really, I think it's playing out in um, sort of our new conversation about anti-racism, um, whereas now a lot of folks will claim to be anti-racist or working towards anti-racism, but they're certainly not going to give up how comfortable they are and, and that privilege or, or any of that power to really, or, or to really, you know, share power with folks. There is, there's, there seems to be that line, you know, like I, I'm going to do do this, which often seems kind of transactional. Um, but I certainly am not going to put myself in an uncomfortable position and give up, you know, something that um, that I feel I'm, I'm owed because it is. It, there's this um, this idea around. I, I've seen it a lot in my my current work. Uh, idea around yeah this 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 being still owed to me um because i i worked hard for it too the know? entitlement that's showing yeah. itself i think is yeah. what i'm hearing you talk about is like there is a, an effort to want to kind of like name the iniquity and yet what you're saying is like but not actually dismember yourself right and the disintegration that's really necessary when you start doing anti-racism work, where you start to realize the extent of atrocity and like really how. Um, and so it, it, it I'd like you to go into it a little bit more, if you would, in that it's exposing uh, a spectrum of, of well-meaning white person that is also um I feel quite predatory if we can't name it because it's yeah. like this progressive person that's yeah. acting like an ally and it's actually the, the wolf in disguise. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if I can, can, can read a poem. <laughs> Please. Um, I, I, Please. I've, this has been fresh on my mind because I'm 
you know, in a situation where I'm feeling this very deeply now. So a few weeks ago, um, I had just written this poem to just like get it out, <laughs> out of yes. me. Um, there, there's a poet um, here in the Twin Cities. Um, actually, he might be from either Madison or Chicago area, <laughs> but his name is uh, Guante. Um, and Guante is, uh, does a lot of work in anti-racism as, as an artist and a, as an organizer and a, a workshop leader um, and is, is an amazing poet. Uh, but he talks about um, how white supremacy is, is not the shark, it's the water. And so I was thinking about that, that idea, that concept, and maybe even uh, the idea of like the well-meaning white people that um, have sort of, you know, tried to uh, assist me by inviting me into white spaces um, because I'm I have the appearance of sort of the non-threatening black guy, which is a whole other thing. So that's. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I want to hear talk about that because yeah, the the, the niceness, the, the yeah. acceptability, uh, and we'll go there. So go yeah. ahead. Um, so the poem uh, is: uh, I'm not a natural swimmer, or why I'm building my own boat. Okay, so I'm I'm really really tired of being invited to swim in water by great white sharks. They have lived and thrived in these waters for thousands of years. They were made by these waters, and these waters were made for them. These predators know very well that I'm not a shark. I don't have gills. I don't even have a blowhole. You know, the these sharks know this all too well. And I tell them I'm a land dweller who can't swim, uh, who can swim yet, but it's not my favorite, and it's exhausting when I do. I say I am not a natural swimmer, and yet. They still invite me in. These sharks are always telling me, this water is different. It's fresh water. Or we'll give you floaties and a snorkel. Seems like there's a lot of water out there and not very much land. And seems I don't have much choice but to jump in at times. And I'm left having to trust the sharks. How traumatizing is it to swim in that water when you weren't made for swimming? How traumatizing it is to swim with those sharks when their nature is to eat you up. And when they drag you into the deep, choppy black water, they stare apathetically or with false tears as you drown, all the while saying they've done all they can. You drown and they devour you like they did your brother, your sister, your mom, your grandmother, your ancestors, your land, your history. The body remembers. I say... I'm not a natural swimmer, and yet they still invite me. And God, I'm tired of drowning. I'm building a boat. So, wow. My body remembers that yeah. they keep inviting me into the water. Yeah. And they ate up your brother and your sister and your land and your culture and your history. Right. So like the well-meaning white folks are, like you mentioned, the predator, it, it, it is sort of predatory um, when they're inviting you into these places um, and that is built for them. 
you know, um, they, they don't change the culture of the place. Um, and so like, ultimately you're, you're kind of doomed to, to fail. Um, and, um, to experience more trauma and to continue being extracted. So yeah. you're being invited into a space to be extracted and, right. um, which is the historical pattern, which is why calling it predatory is really the necessity. Like I, I'm using this language more and more and watching the discomfort that, that when I share it in white spaces is, is, is noticeable, right? It's that kind of word that we want to, to whisper. Yeah. But you use that in your poem. You talked about yeah. the predator, you know, and when something goes on long enough and there's a formula to it, it's predatory. Yeah. And the waters of white supremacy. I love that language. It's not the shark. It's the water. And it's like yeah. just as fish that come up in these waters, we can't we don't know. We can't see that water. And so right. it, it's the 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 language the vividness of being on the land there's less and less land so so I sometimes I have to get into the water yes <laughs> right mm. there are not there are not enough spaces for for me mm. <laughs> uh, yes for me. yeah mm-hmm. yes and to see that as still true present day yes and amplified almost to like a like something on steroids, like it's just amplified. So we're seeing all that historically has been true that in an African-American experience, you're coming up, you've been aware of so much that white people have been shielded from. And it shows in your story of, of your, of your grandma as a nanny that white people are like, Oh, for three generations, like that, that would be astounding to some of us that think that things have been equal for generations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, and her mother, uh, you know, cleaned white offices um, for 50 years uh, in, in, uh, in D.C., um, mm. uh, federal offices. Um, so, you know, their, their labor, their labor, um, even though free, was still connected to, to white people and, and whiteness and depending on, you know, them for <laughs> um, to, to live. Uh, essentially, um, mm. yeah, that's um, it, it. Is a very sort of interesting um, connection. Um, and now, like I said, with 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 anti racism and sort of thinking about devouring, <laughs> uh, uh, continuously devouring of um, history and 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 what have you. Um, I'm thinking about the term anti-racism and and how now white organizations are are using it now. Um, they're they're using it to to get money. <laughs> Frankly, that should go directly to communities uh, of of color. Mm. Um, and you know that's that I see that happening on the daily. Um, and these folks that Agil are again, sorry, are you know well-meaning. Because they do intend to do <laughs> to use it for for anti racism, not understanding that these funds and this um, this capital could be um, better used, like directly in the community and going directly to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that talks about the power again, right? 
like the reason why they get the money is because they have these organizations um, that they say are necessary because they don't trust the people with with the money directly. The land does You're speaking to the power structures of how money is then siphoned out. So federal funds are then allocated and that those funds get distributed to X organizations at state and local and whatever levels. And what I, and I don't know enough about, you know, nonprofit sectors and and how these things allocate, but I, I know that there's a politics involved in that. And so what I hear you talking about is that these large organizations that are white centric, white run, haven't made actual real adjustments, but can do performative language. They have the fun, they have the money to to vie for those funds faster than some roots, hands, hands on the ground organizations that don't have those extra resources to to make sure they get those grant funds. Absolutely. And so these white centric spaces are getting anti-racist funds and not actually bringing in people that can change culture, change the language, change the eyes in which things are being seen through as opposed to just the veneer, the cosmetic, the veneer that's getting painted by putting a couple black or colored people on your website and, you know, having team meetings where the one or two black people that work at your company speak. Yeah. And sometimes not speak. Or not speak there and just be present. (laughs) Just be oh, just as a presence in the room. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. The more you can tell us about the actual experience, it's vivid. And like, I don't work in corporate America. I just know that these types of things exist. But I can only imagine what performative strategies the last couple of years has brought forward. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been somewhat consistent, at least over the past. I would say maybe almost decade now where I've been put in position where, um, where I'm the only, um, or, or one of the first, um, that, uh, is, is hired or recruited, um, you know, to be, um, on, on boards. I will say this is, uh, you know, initially this started with me being invited um, to be on a board of a public arts um, organization uh, here in the Twin Cities. And um, this was in, yeah, I would say this is about 20, uh, 2012, 20, maybe uh, 2011 or so. Um, and at the time, I was invited, this, this organization's board only had, I, I was the only Black person. Um, that for or this, this arts organization that basically distribute public funds throughout a uh, seven county metro area mm. where percentage wise there were like 12 people on the board and I was like you know the only black person um, there were two Asian women um, that were on the board um, you know and I looked at this and I was just like this is this is crazy <laughs> like, uh, to be in- invited into this space. Um, now, this is, I was invited by an ally who, who really is uh, a strong ally um, and probably on the spectrum of where you are as well in terms of well-meaning. Um, and, and he recognized that, yeah, that this is ridiculous that there are no Black people and he knew me. Um, in the work that I had done. And so that's how I got invited. 
um, onto that board. Um, but it was it was a challenge to get um, people to see like like sort of the the systems that were in place that were sort of gatekeeping funds from artists of color uh, mm. in the Twin Cities, you know. Um, and I think in, in a lot of those spaces, what I get, and now I, this is the thing that I get often that now I don't even realize it when it's happening, is that I don't see color well meeting folks. Yes, right? and, yes. And I'm just like, but, but really in order to solve the systems, you have you to see You need color. to see color. <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. You have to see color like, to understand the way these systems work and attain them. You cannot be like that 80s. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it came out of sort of maybe the, the 60s, like boomer, uh, you know, culture where it's like, no, let's just not see color. Everyone's the same. But when you do that, you're really not understanding. First of all, you're erasing the history of yes. people of color and the experience of people of color in, um, in this country. You know, that that's first. And, and you know, really... Um, you're you're ignoring the problems that that still exist um, right yes. now. Yes, yes. You know? I'm so glad you brought this up because, you know, that's really where I had come from. And I remember being 18, and when I moved to Africa, kind of having that epiphany was like, no, we're not all the same. You know, it was that ideology of like we're all one. We don't see color, you know, all you know beneath beneath the skin is everybody has red blood, you know, and that right. kind of flower child mentality. And I remember like not understanding that it was linked to an anti-racist un- understanding, but just thinking, no, that was wrong. And then, you know, 20 years later, you're still deconstructing and pulling things apart. But this, I don't see color. This is a big one for white people and well-meaning white people, especially mm-hmm. in spiritual spaces that are like yoga people and, you know, conscious white people yeah. that are saying stuff like, I don't see your color and, and don't understand how actually uh, offensive and violating that is. And oh, what you said about erasure. So important. So important. And I hear it a lot. And when I had my kind of like wake up moment, I started noticing like, oh, oh, I can say something about that. I can be like, no, that's false. And this is why, you know, and that's a part of becoming a better ally, right? Is realizing, whoa, I'm not equipped in the language because I haven't done enough personal study to be able to recognize these things as they're happening in real time. And this happened on my, my podcast having to do with my culture. And when, mm-hmm. when I recognized it, I was like, Whoa, I'm not a very good at our race. I need to go study. And I, and cause I couldn't, I could feel it in my body, but I couldn't name it in the language. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, it's, um, uh... It's it's really particular. I found to to the culture here in Minnesota. Um, you know, white people culture. Yeah, yeah, white people culture here in in Minnesota. Um, and, and I understand. I understand it because Minnesota. Um, you know, before I came uh, to college, uh, before I moved here to attend McAllister College, 
you know, what I knew of Minnesota was, was not a lot. You know, I knew Francis from here. I was like, yeah, Francis out there, of course. That's cool. <laughs> I knew that Mondale um, was from here. And that was like the first presidential um, campaign that I worked on. I was eleven um, on the on the phones with my my great grandma again, and I so I knew he was from Minnesota, and and that was it. I oh, and I knew Humphrey was from Minnesota, and so for me, like Mondale and Humphrey, relatively again were um, sort of those progressive folks. You know, Mondale was um, Carter's vice president, and um, and I'd known of. Uh, um, and I had known of sort of that whole like campaign and, and everything. Um, so when I told people I was coming to McAllister, it's like, oh, Minnesota, yeah, you know, that's you'll be okay out there. It's a you know pretty progressive, you know, state, and I think Minnesotans still believe that, you know, um, and especially the Twin Cities. Um, yeah, I yeah. think more and more that um, sort of uh, there's a divide between. Um, the urban and ex-urban and rural in Minnesota uh, yeah. uh, uh, culturally. But I think Minnesotans still want to think that they're this progressive state, um, although we're often in either number one or number two in the worst states uh, for uh, in terms of um, economic, uh, the gap between whites and blacks uh, and in education. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's because of that well-meaning whiteness that that gap exists. Mm, keep going. Because I think they feel um, that if everything, <laughs> again, this is the idea that it's, you're, you're colorblind, so you're not necessarily seeing the division. Like you're thinking, oh, you know, Minnesota as a state overall, it's very good. We rank very high in livability um, and maybe not as high as we did in the 90s, say, for education, but still relatively high. Um, but and so they're just like all boats rise, right? Colorblind, all boats rise. So if we're doing, you know, if Minnesota's doing great overall, then it must be great for everyone. Right. Yes. They don't they don't see. Um, the disparity, the built-in inequity. Yeah, um, yeah. And and I want to tie this like in Minnesota specifically. There's that Minnesota nice quality, right? So somebody can kind of be surfacey, like, and then you know say you know very horrible things that are very rooted in racism right after that sentence and right to your face sometimes. Yeah, and through kind of through this nice persona, and so this colorblind concept. Um, that shows up everywhere. But I say it's a concept because white people are routinely not recognizing it in themselves. And this is supposed to be the group that, as you pointed out, progressive, right? The group that's for the cause. Right. So if we don't keep plucking at this group and help, like, you can't see yourself. You're, you know, there's actions, right? You're saying things that don't allow you to see the reality mm. of yourself because your identity is so rooted in being nice or being, I don't see color. Right. Um, and it reminds me of um, just that, that idea that 
well-meaning white people, but just there's a huge population of white people that are deathly afraid of being seen as racist. Mm. So that kind of like the veneer because, and there's kind of that, that's what makes it extra worse to black people is like black people feel that from us folks, they feel it. So if, if we're uncomfortable in our bodies <laughs> and we're desperately afraid of looking racist, it's because we are. We generally have stuff in us that we haven't unpacked and looked at like, I don't see color. Yeah. And it's, it's like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, I'm going back to that poem. Like I keep getting invited to these, these things um, a lot and, and, and it's because I do, I honestly want to be in those spaces because I think that I can, I think I do have the power to, to move things for, for the, for the overall good. And so, um, I, I accept, I do accept some invitations. I, I do investigate a lot more, um, and do to make sure that it's, to make sure it's worth your emotional labor and the effort yeah, that you're going to have to go through when you step into that space. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because I, you know, I had two experiences um, recently where, um, or one in particular, where I was invited to be a part of um, a fellowship. And um, this fellowship was created um, because this, uh, the field in Minnesota um, saw that there weren't uh, enough uh, Black for uh, actually people people of color um, in sort of manager and director position. So they wanted to create a pipeline because they thought it was a pipeline problem um, to, um, to get people from other sectors to move to this sector. So pause. A pipeline problem means not enough people in the pipeline? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, which we all know is not the case. <laughs> the, the talent is there. It's just like, are, are you reaching that, that talent? You know, um, are you creating a space that they want to be in one? They, they um, even want to be a part of, right? Right, right. Um, and so uh, I was in the inaugural cohort of, of this, this fellowship and because I really had no idea about the sector. Uh, I had this understanding of the organization that I said I would be placed with was one of the good ones. Again, that, that, that freshwater, uh, if you will. Um, and so I was like, okay. Uh, and, and, Oh, I'm even bothered that that language was delivered that within this group of cohorts that there were already ones labeled some of the good ones. Well, yeah. And then, so I, my experience was that, you know, when we were brought into the organization um, as fellows, um, we were, uh, everyone in that, my cohort had been in the workforce for, you know, 20 years or more, um, had uh, experience in other sectors, um, had their careers already, um, and the staff treated us like interns, essentially. <laughs> uh, and, you know, 
basically is that idea of sort of, you know, people who would have this idea around from affirmative action um, and that we were uh, essentially diversity hired, which in a sense we kind of were um, because they didn't set up this program uh, in a culture that would understand um, this in relation to, to anything other than uh, affirmative action or a diversity hire. Like mm. the work had not been done uh, in that culture to have a different understanding of why something like this might be necessary. Mm. Um, leadership had not done that work with the staff. So we really came into a very hostile environment. Oh. Um, and some, some of us did not, you know, make it because it was so, so hostile. Um, and so well-meaning <laughs> as it was, um, it really ended up causing a great deal of trauma for everyone in that first cohort one. Um, and I, it didn't achieve its goal ultimately. Sounds very re-traumatizing at, at best. Yes, Absolutely. And, you know, right in the middle of your story, you, you made, a, made a, a very high level awareness call that says, well, of course, they weren't set up to receive us properly. So it's probably why they treated us this way. But that's not your job, right, to understand the larger uh, no. si- system that to, like you were coming in in a particular role that should have been received in a particular way. And based on what you just spoke out was the leadership didn't do the necessary tilling of that soil to be able to let that fellowship serve the objective that it supposedly was supposed to have. Yeah. And once again, I don't think I am fully understanding of what these languages mean, what it means when you're doing a fellowship and you're coming to an organization. I don't fully grasp what that means, but if I get yeah. the I get that it wasn't set up properly for you to be treated respectfully as a, as an artist and a, a creator and for all the things that supposedly this um, opportunity was supposed to allow for. It just sounds like you like it's like the first kids that went to integrate schools or something. Oh, it, it, it yeah, <laughs> it's absolutely. Uh, there's this great there's this great song. Actually, I. I think this might be my song. Okay. Uh, this is a great song by by TV on the radio called Test Pilot. And during the worst of it, like that album came out. It's on the Seeds album. And I was just like, oh my God, this is my song. And I would just play it every morning, like mm. in the bathroom. <laughs> it's like, I'm a test pilot. The mm. conditions are that of a test pilot. Like, I don't even know if this airplane, if this jet works, but I'm going to fly it. Like that's how sort of exposed I, uh, how exposed mm. I felt and vulnerable. I, I felt, uh, in those, in those conditions, like this thing could just completely blow up. You know, I don't know, mm. um, because they did not create the right atmosphere for culture. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's exactly how I felt. And how horrible that is, you know, that um, that in whatever year, you know, in in the 21st century that this is repeating itself when you shouldn't be a test pilot to anything in, in this day and day and age. And so I just want to acknowledge that, that that you're you're worth so much more. And um, but I would really like you to pause on this topic you've brought up around 
being invited into white spaces, whether it's on a board or this awesome opportunity to be a part of a fellowship or, or a bunch of other things I have a feeling you could name. I've, I have a sense that there are successful, well-meaning white people that don't understand why that wouldn't be an offer that is mm. wonderful. And so framing it from this kind of like un, unaware point of view, I can hear this kind of whiteness speaking out loud to say, well, how is change supposed to be created if we don't invite black people onto this board or into these spaces? Right. And so right. like what would please you kind of thing. And that yeah. tonality is the problem, right? The, um, yeah. And whatever else you want to add to that. <laughs> you know, that, that's one of the notes that I have okay. um, regarding this whole situation is that, once you do, say, offer a critique, which I often do because I am looking at the systems ultimately that are, uh, are in place in that environment, too, and, and, and recognizing you know, what, what they are, usually my, the return or retort is, well, you should be happy to have been invited. Mm -hmm. right? You should be happy to, to be here. You should be happy to have this fellowship. Um, you should be happy, you know, that I created this position for, you know, for you, blah, blah, blah. Um, Pause. It's so loaded. It's just so loaded. Right. You should be happy. You should be happy that I created this position for you. You should be happy that you have this opportunity. It's just thickly layered. Go ahead. Yeah. The power <laughs> in that, you know, the, the, like just not understanding the power dynamics, right? And and how power is distributed in in America. Um, it's just like that, that is some. That's, uh, yeah, that's and that's and that's where that's a huge part of the frustration. And, and I will say, like the best way is the way like anti racist, you know, at least over the past like you know twenty and twenty five years have you know kind of taught us. To, to move forward here to so really um, one do the work like yourself <laughs> you know and 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 it's not something that you just rush through like you it's not something that you just read a book you know there's like organizations that do trainings and and there's so much um, it's, it's not something that you get through in like six months <laughs> and now you're anti-racist right it, it, it's a lot of work. To, to do um, to change that culture and move things forward in the right direction. And then the, the best thing I feel is the dismantling of these systems that you're a part of and being an active participant. Um, and, and you don't have to know everything to do that. You can ask questions, right? You can ask questions of the systems that you're a part of and that you're, you're benefiting from and, and just recognize that. And then you build something new and different with people of color. And mm -hmm. it means that you have to just listen to them, you know, and take, you know, take the, the orders um, from some of the people who have experienced the system on, on that side, from that side of things. Mm. Um, and mm. yeah. Mm. You're really hitting some powerful points. I think that, not just the listening, but I think that also white people have got to sit some things out. Oh yeah. And how hard, like 
not just sit them out, but be left out and be left with the feeling of being left out. And how historically, generationally, we've participated, even through our own silence or non-action or inability to act, even if if there were circumstances, right, as white generations participated in not allowing whole generations of black people and indigenous people to not be invited to, to, to not just that. So not just not being invited, but being kicked out. Right. Yeah. So there's and and for white people to not be willing to have these moments of of full on discomfort as black people come together in self-recognition and white people aren't invited to the party. Right. And all I hear is a lot of times people, white people are, well, that's unfair. No, no, it's not unfair. It's necessary. It's such it's so on point for this moment. Because the one thing that I always thought that was for black folks that no no white folks would ever take away from us is Juneteenth. Mm. Like Juneteenth is so black. <laughs> like it is like the blackest thing. And now because people are aware of it, like we have corporations making Juneteenth ice cream. There was like this cooking um, thing, and I think it was in Kentucky, going to be in Kentucky, where um, they put together uh, this this uh, celebration of black chefs, um, and then the main presenters were all white chefs, mm. you know, and I, I think it was just like celebrating food in Kentucky, but it, but the, the speaker, the main speakers on the poster, it said Juneteenth. And then it had three white, like, <laughs> chefs under the picture. It's just like, oh, no, y'all, thanks for recognizing that this holiday is really important to Black people. But you can sit this one out, honestly. This is something that is about Black liberation. And honestly, like, we've been doing all right with it. We don't need the help with it. We celebrate. We've been celebrating it for a very long time. <laughs> and y'all been unaware all this time <laughs> that it even was being celebrated in Black communities across hey, the nation. <laughs> sit it out. Sit it out. This, seriously, this leave it alone <laughs> for, for once. Man. <laughs> and I know we're I mean, laughing, but it's really not. I saw the meme around, you know, the Walmart ice cream and just oh, the atro- it's just another layer of atrocity. It's just like yeah. how much more do you want to keep stripping? Yeah, exactly. It's um but I, I mean I just thought that, that was a perfect illustration of like, man, sometimes you just need to to sit it out. Just you don't have to be a part of it all. Um uh there's that uh what was it? that book on you know, why are all the black kids sitting together at the lunch table? Like, like spaces are important for, um, for people of color um, because we, we often, I mean, we live in a society where there isn't much space. There isn't much land, if you will. Right. Back to and, the and land. So, right. Like we, you know, we, we just need that space for our own like healing and our own preservation um, in, in this culture. So yeah, yeah. Well said, well said. And what I want to say is that I don't, I don't feel that, that the real history of 
the breaking apart of the black family, the the raping and torturing of the male black body, the medical uh, testing plants of the black body, the 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 breaking apart, you know, just all the things, and, and repeatedly, so from slavery and then all the generations. Black and indigenous families and, and people of culture are quite aware of atrocities of their own generations. And, and for years, a part of these systems is that white people have not been. And it's a it's purposely made invisible for white people. And I have a sense because it's what happens in me. I mean, I, I've obviously been looking at this longer, but when we see and I'm talking about white people, when we see the stories, the real stories, and you watch the real movies and you start to let yourself feel the humanity of what it would mean if you watched your child be burned or hung or this, and then the next generation and then the next generation, and then how stories pass down through generations that create culture. And what you're saying is black spaces are a necessity because it's the only ways that safety has been created in places of continual incessant threat. So when we see and experience a minute amount, whether it's Black Wall Street or whether this story or this story or whatever, and we let ourselves start to hear and read and feel the humanity of what's taken place, there's nothing but space that needs to be created. You know, mm-hmm. it's nothing but these voices have to get start getting elevated because you can see the patterns of history. Yeah to keep them silenced, to keep them out of the the storyline of understanding just how brutal whiteness yeah. has really been. And and now there's a movement to make it illegal to teach it, to read books about um the books about it now. So there's certainly that regression there. And you know, my um and I want to pause and say, I don't know how much, as much as I think it's horrible to all the CRT school has always taught wrong history. As oh, long yeah, as I've absolutely. ever known public school, I think public school is founded on, you know, having kind of agendas to kind of yeah. train the population towards a particular goal, whether it's the systemic bell operating or teaching the wrong narratives so that whole generations are, are yeah. being fed to be, breeders in society versus free thinkers so we can pull education apart in many directions what i want to say though is that real history has always been taught within the families and within the cultures and so you know these stories have always been available we don't have to depend on crt to be now we should have public school available teaching proper narratives yeah but it's all of our job to really read beneath and, 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 and get to these stories. Yeah. And, and you may come, you may come in contact with these stories. If you are happy, if you're um, fortunate to live in communities that are, um, you know, multicultural, like that are, you know, like my neighborhood <laughs> um, and, you know, living between immigrants from Sudan and uh, immigrants mm. from uh, Eritrea uh, and then uh, Central American like uh, immigrants across the street, like that's a beautiful like environment for learning the stories and hearing the stories. But if you're a, wh- a white kid, and you know, I would even say rural Minnesota, which is also changing um, because of those immigrant communities moving out into mm-hmm. those places. But like you're, um, 
the likelihood of you coming in contact with those stories and those true histories is very, it's very slim. Um, and I mean, that's part of the, the issue, right? Um, it sure is. And it's purposeful as we know, yeah. right? If they can do exactly. the erasure, yep. um, yeah. massive erasure, because you know, the layers you pick at, you realize, whoa, this goes deep and this is really, really horrible. Yeah, like, the, sadistic the, the, horror displacement and redlining and um uh, you know the a project that i'm working on now is creating uh uh ar space to mark the important um spaces in our um the community that i live in uh frog town and rondo area um rondo is a historic historically black community in uh st paul minnesota um that was devastated, uh, you know, physically devastated by the creation of 94. Uh, the freeway? Yeah, the freeway. Um, and then um, Frogtown is a uh, historically first stop for immigrant communities. Um, right now, because of um, a development related to a new light rail system, um, both communities are... are you know, fighting back against displa- displacement by gentrification. Um, and so I'm trying to create spaces in the virtual world <laughs> that kind of claim a stake and say, this place is very important to the community. Um, like, and and have the voices of the community, actual voices of the community in, interwoven in the music of that artificial re- or augmented reality space. Um, so that will will always be there um, mm. for people to 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 know that this space was once <laughs> a very meaningful space to um, the people of color uh, in St. Paul, Frogtown, and Rondo. So right now, Rondo and Frogtown are getting um, displaced with gentrification because they're just starting to get such like buzzy areas of town that now these immigrants and black people are getting pushed out of these areas. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're. They're um, creating a lot of housing. Um, I mean, it's all like the right thing to do, right? It is like having um, housing close to transit for people who, so people don't have to have cars. You know, um, these are good things, right? But but in the meanwhile, you're actually displacing the people that already live there without offering them something comparable in terms of like affordable housing. Mm-hmm. You know, and creating spots that aren't necessarily for them, but to bring other people into the community um, who then say, oh, this cute, cute little shop is here. Like, I want to live close to this little shop, you know. And then so eventually, yes, those folks move to an inner ring suburb, which then becomes um, by design, a, you know, a depressed suburb um, with not a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Well said. You're bringing up so many um, nuanced and layers of complexity. And, and it's just a really important part to understand about these conversations is, you know, we, we don't come together to talk solutions. We talk, we come together to talk about the complexity of unwinding predatory patterns. Yeah. This, this isn't easy stuff, right? Predatory patterns, we all grow to adapt in them. And then we maneuver ourselves through them and we become predator and prey in different instances because it's hard to constantly see what's actually taking place when things just get so normalized, when behavior gets normalized, 
we, we get numb to it instead of being able to be like, no, no, that's not going to work because, and, and, and realizing that these, um, I, I just think the point you brought up about being invited into white spaces and how often well-meaning white people are creating spaces for people of color, black people, and not realizing that just the design, the tonality of the invite, the, the ask is rooted in historical racism. Yes. And Absolutely. if we can't begin to see that the actual design of our behavioral pattern is the racist act, and we're doing it from a place of well-meaningness, right. but it doesn't make it any less less rooted in historical racism. It's just present day disguised. Yeah. And it's, and and again, I just want to like again hammer home the idea this understanding that that this is actually traumatizing yes. for for people of color large you know on a large scale or a small scale it, it ends up you know leaving um leaving a scar thank you this is essential because this is why we're using the language of predators um and violation and understanding that no matter how well-meaning our intentions may be, the impact is traumatizing and re-traumatizing. And therefore we must stop. And even if we don't understand why it's traumatized, why the actual, if we don't understand the whole thing, we still must stop (laughs) (laughs) and then educate ourselves. Pause, you know, stop being invited, you know, inviting yourself into spaces. Um, and, and creating ill invitations. Yeah. I wanted to just speak back to this idea of well-meaning whiteness came from my awareness of the amount of friends I have that are black and of different cultures around the world. And among these circles, there's like eye glances, a nods. There's kind of a camaraderie of understanding whiteness when it's exposed. Mm-hmm. So we all know it kind of like, or it's like a look, it's a, it's a something. So these stories have been well regurgitated through bodies of culture. But what occurred to me is that in white spaces, I found myself in white people had no idea that there was a sense of, and so that was like a disparity. I was like, holy moly, how can there be a whole culture of people that know what well-meaning whiteness looks like, sounds like, feels like, and that white, white people might not even have a gaze into it yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem, Roger. That's a problem. It really is. Um, which leads me to the meme, and I know this is an area that that you have areas to talk about. Um, you talked about the the Karen, the kind of the two sides of the. It was like a meme I saw. I think. Oh yeah. The cool um, colonizer. I'm not the cool colonizer. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> so speak to that. Speak to that and break it down a little. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I mean, I think that that is like the epitome of well, that that there's like that one side where like I'm totally down, you know, like I'm down with the cause, you know, I'm you know I'm I'm kind of one of you. Um, but Ooh, I'm one of you. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, those like, are the cool, the hip, hip folks. Like I know the language. I've read that book. So I, I know the language, you know, and, um, sort of inserting 
into the culture. That's that's the, that's the cool colonizer. Like they might know like the lyrics better than you do, you know. And they they may they might like skip the raisins and the potato salad and and have someone's recipe. Maybe maybe their nanny taught them, you know, right? And and so, <laughs> you know, they're they they're cool. They're down. Um, but sometimes those can be the most problematic people uh, in the group because they they're not because they've inserted themselves in the culture. They don't think they have anything to learn, mm. right? Even if they're still acting, um, because there's that power in taking up space and also claiming, you know, another culture or appropriating another culture. Right, that that's that's power, um, because you you have that entitlement. Like I can be anywhere, you know, and um, that's that's harmful. <laughs> mm, it's violent. It's harmful. It's really violent. It's very violent. And Minnesota is a place where I felt I felt that uh, a lot more than I did growing up in in DC. Um, because there just were some black spaces, <laughs> you know, it was a black city. So there were places where I would go, I would never see a white person. Um, but Minnesota, I don't, they're very, there are those spaces, but there's very few. And very people few. Feel, people feel yeah. entitled to, to go be in any space that they want to be in. Mm. Mm. Very well said. Growing up in D.C., you know, in, in such a black city, you know, there's not many places in the United States that is more black than not black, right? Or not than white. And, and um, you know, I don't think white people have had that many op- opportunities where they're in a space where they're, they're the minority, right? And so right. what that does in our body, you know, to track what's actually happening, you might think one thing, but then what's actually happening in the animal body or in our physiology. But I, I want to go back to what you just said, the power in taking up space. Mm. It, it goes a lot to white centering too. <clears throat> yeah, Bringing it back to self yeah. and how unconscious that can be as a well-meaning ally, as a well-meaning and progressive person that's kind of down for the cause and, and unconsciously circling it back to us. Yeah. I, I had a colleague who... Um, was trying a, a good friend of mine and colleague who was trying to set up these talking circles for uh, for Asian women. This is this is not like this is this year, <laughs> this past year, or in twenty twenty one. I think maybe twenty twenty one. And so she, you know, put the call out on social media, and she got a response uh, from this white woman who said, "You know, I, I." I, I I identify as Asian, like culture, because I'm so, you know, and yeah, Holy uh, shit. yeah, like, and um, I mean, my my friend is it's such a like I don't even know what to call it because I know my, what my response would have been, but she was just like, okay, well, can you tell me <laughs> more about that? Which is how I mean, how how I would approach it now because I you know I really appreciate it that she. <laughs> She approached it in that way because it's, you know, a place of curiosity, like, so, because I'm sure that will happen again. (laughs) You want to understand, like, where are these people coming from that think that they're, like, Asian when they're clearly not? Um, But, you know, she's, you know, just like a, you know, one of the files, uh, like, 
um, just really at the, the Asian culture and how Asian people are, you know, and their spirituality. And so she like identifies Asian, not understanding that like, well, that's okay. To, that's great that you can put that on like when you want to and then take it off. Like that's some privilege. Do you understand that privilege and being able to say, yeah, I'm going to put on this little robe here that says I'm Asian. But like when, you know, when stuff hits the fan, I'm just like, oh, that's right. Remember, I'm not, you know, Asian. But I mm. like that's really violent for, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, there's just so much I got to say here. Like, my God, I'm, I'm like foaming at the mouth in disgust because it's, it's a, such colonizer language and we don't even know it. Like we don't yeah. even know enough of history that white people move to other countries. Right. So she's saying, I relate to culture. That's what she's saying. I relate to Asian culture, you know, right. this is so basically as she's sharing, relating to culture, identifying as culture doesn't mean you are that culture. Right. And the construct of false identity and how it wraps around white people, let's say well-meaning white person, let's say that person's father was a diplomat. Mm. Right. Mm. And they are living overseas. So now here they identify more as an Asian person because they were raised in Asia or they traveled around the world. Like in my culture, so many of the kids that are white, their parents were well-meaning white people kind of being more conscious that kind of went the yoga route, but they're white historically. And, but we now relate more to Indian culture because Mm -hmm. we grew up with this Indian demographic as our worldview. But the the nature of the the historical appropriation of just the mere identity that I'm claiming, yeah. like that's rooted in appropriation and rooted in imperialism. Yeah, absolutely. And white centric. It's basically saying I get to extract culture because I got to live there and I identify more with your culture than my own. And so therefore I am that until I am not because I want to travel to a country where Asians aren't allowed. Now I'm white again. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. And And this space was for conversation about Asian women experience. (laughs) <laughs> this white woman did not have an Asian woman experience that, that she can now not tell any story <laughs> about being an Asian woman. She can't share any story about being an Asian mm. woman, you know? And yeah, that column, that's one word that I think really makes, well, well, one end of the spectrum no, I think the full spectrum of, of mm-hmm. well-meaning, like I agree. you know, colonize, you know, colonizer or colonial. Yes, um, I've I've had this experience recently where I've said that this, uh, you know, a specific culture is very colonial, and it's like really uh, in its focus on production over like um, hum- the humanity of people. In yes, yeah, it's it's this like. It's, it's like that water thing again. Like those sharks can't see that. They don't know any different. So even like colonialism is a part of that water. They, they're just like, what do you mean colonial? Like that's like, that's you know, so long ago. I saw so that in a ago. movie once. Yeah, no, it still exists <laughs> in our system. <laughs> it's playing around. You're playing out colonizer behavior. And it's such yes. a good a, a point you're making because that's exactly it. It's that 
erasure has happened enough through white families that these stories haven't been passed on probably because they were so painful then and white people didn't want to identify with that level of causing pain to other people then so the stories didn't pass on but it's more systemic than that it's not was not just a familial choice you know it was systemic it was purposeful that that white people were fed the idea that all is equal now. And they bought it without looking at the reality that no, it's not, it's not at all. The systems have just gone. It's like cockroaches that go into hiding. And then the other thing I think that is seen or or unseen is the the role that white supremacy and that um, colonizing culture has played um, into the erasure of white ethnicities, if you will, European ethnicities. You know, in order to make it in this country, you have to be white. (laughs) So you cannot be Scottish. (laughs) You cannot be Irish. Like, you know, like they, that's also this this erasure that happens and erasure of stories. Like, what is the story of whiteness? Like, whiteness is this American thing, right? Like, you know, (laughs) you know, what, what, yeah, that's a total erasure um, of who white, you know, people who considered white people are, like, don't have those connections anymore either. Those stories are being left, you know, for, for whiteness. And I think that's such a good point to bring up is that, you know, we talk about whiteness as as its own culture, but it's not. It's a it's a fabricated system that's linked right. to white supremacy. And it can be traced back when it started getting talked about. Right. When. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you're bringing up this like we can all do this amount of study. I, I heard a great podcast um I forget the woman's name, but she was a white woman who had done a lot of historical study on Resma Menicum's podcast called uh, Gorilla wow. Muse. And mm-hmm. what I loved about what she was talking about is, she, you know, she talks about where did this construct of white, where did we start seeing white being written? Do you identify as white, you know, black and, and how these categories, what years they got brought into our history. So we can start seeing how, like what you said, the Irish, the Scottish, the Italian, the, the Jewish, everybody had to kind of become less of their culture and more fit into here. And this was a part of the systems yeah. that have been historically created that we don't even know we're fitting into. But we are, we're fit into these systems and we have to go back just a little bit in history that is very much available and start deconstructing it and deconstructing Mm -hmm. it in your family, your body, your, your story, because it's too easy to jump out of that and just say, we're all one race is a construct. And while that is true in its existential point of view, that's not the reality in the physical bodies that we're actually operating in from day to day. Right. Right. And, and honestly, I see more of that research being done by, you know, biracial or multiracial people than, than white folks. I have a lot of friends who are, um, you know, mostly like white or white, white and Asian or Latin and Asian or, or black and, uh, oh, sorry, and white. Latin and white. Anyway, something in white that are doing that genealogical research than people who are, are you know, um, are you white and probably of European and Scandinavian descent. Yeah, and I'm um, seeing a lot of at least 
you know, I, I poke my head into spiritual spaces and, and this is kind of like where the vitriol was showing up was I, I just couldn't believe the amount of um, historical amnesia and appropriation taking place in these supposedly woke spiritual circles, you know, where people are taking on names of Isis and Oshun and, and other Indian names and goddess this and, and naming themselves. Right. And then having language around, you know, the sovereignty of our bodies to express ourselves. And I'm thinking, God, you know, not too long ago, we didn't let black people and indigenous people have their names, have their rituals, have their music, have their bodies, have move their bodies, have their, their grieving, whatever. And, and to hear white people, which is basically ancestry of the very people that extracted that from black and brown bodies the irony is just too much. It's it's too much. And I'm not even a black person and I'm overwhelmed in the irony of, of it. Yeah. That, that, that is such a a great point, honestly, that, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you know, that's why I've never felt like, I know I've, I've, I wanted to, you know, I'm doing more that uh, I've been on several spiritual um, sort of journey since you know I left left home, but that's one space that I I've always kind of felt like eh, I just the, there's more here in the Minnesota that are led by people of color now, which is but great. For, mm-hmm. for a long time, it was mostly white spaces, and I was always like, eh, I just don't feel like you look like you're welcoming me in. But again, like, ah, ah, nope. <laughs> you're the shark. You're the shark. I and you it. think you're a dolphin. Yes. <laughs> right. You're not, you're not a candy gram. No candy gram. <laughs> I know you're swimming like dolphins, but you're actually but sharks. You're shark. I see that fin. You can't hide that fin from me. I know the difference. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and again, we're we're laughing at this, and and yet it's it's really not. It's it's not funny at all. Um, so. And I want to just go back to what you're talking about in in how predatory it is and how violent it is, how re-traumatizing it is. That that it's it's just not okay that this level of ignorance just keeps playing out in a well-meaning way. Yeah, you know, I would, you know, one of the things that I, I think I've identified with a lot these days is, and a part of my identity is someone that, you know, suffers from anxiety and depression. And, you know, at least anxiety, I think, is often caused by sort of this, this need to be um, perfect. And, and that's related to like, the like cultural environments of a lot of the spaces that I've been a part of as, as a nonprofit worker. Um, but also this, this sort of need to fit in and, and maintain that identity of the good black man in order to fit in and that, that stress um, around having to, to, to be that person and never feeling I can be my authentic self, which also is a kind of trauma, I believe. Um, and uh, I've been dealing with that a lot lately um, just because I've been, you know, my last three sort of work experiences have been such sort of colonial, um, really, really, even though they've been nonprofits, really extremely capitalist, mm. um, product-driven uh, environments. Um, and these are service organizations, you know. But yeah, it, it's like 
it really weighs on the mental health, on your mental health that have to be placed in, have to work in these uh, these types of environment that aren't made for you and, and who you are. Oh, you know, I see you, brother. And anxiety and depression and just these aren't easy things to navigate, much less in navigating anxiety and depression while being in a black body, re-traumatized yeah. every day, whether it's the media or whether it's, you know, the non-safety and your, the vigilance that, that you have to live with in your body. Yeah, um, because of these, again, well-meaning spaces and you're talking about nonprofit sector or you're, you know, I, I can't help but think, you know, in the realm of music you're in you know, being a composer and, you know, just this, this isn't a realm that there's a lot of, um, you know, as you're saying that, you know, you've become the, you know, token black person in spaces of, of structural inequity, right. Of structural Uh non-opportunities. And it's not your job to change these spaces, (laughs) I guess is what I want to say. And yet the historical narrative will tell you it is, you know, and so just, I see your humanity and that you just being in your body and being a artist and just being who you are is enough. You don't have to be the crusader that changes these spaces because it's Mm. not your job to do that. You know? Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And back to your everyday life, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. I say that I, I say that truthfully because you know we unpack stuff on on a podcast like this, but we're not we're not offering solutions. What we're doing is we're creating public discourse uh-huh. on taboo topics that we have been trained systemically to not talk about in public spaces. Right, and that's what makes predatory patterns predatory is that when you can't speak about them, then they're rooted in historical shame, secrecy, and silence. And that's by design. And so the more we start talking about the things that are happening in plain sight, and this isn't easy for black people to talk about because a, they've been talking about it for years and years and years, and there's never been uh, spaces or those recordings have been made. And then they, you know, got subjugated and, and erased. And number two, because it's not black people's job to educate anybody. You know, it's our job to educate ourselves. And so by sharing a glimpse into your own story and your experience, I think all of us get to learn. We, we, we put down some knapsacks that um, the systems make us hold. I want to know if there's some other notes or, or uh, points that you want to bring up from your own lived experience lens in life. Yeah. I, you know, I think I got in the, and the points that you know I, I really wanted to 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 talk about um you know really that the idea about and being invited into spaces that aren't um you know really welcoming or or ready <laughs> um for for people of color black people indigenous people and sort of that idea um about you know having a conversation about power <laughs> and what power um, are, you know, well-meaning white folks really willing to give up, you know, that, that, that meaning, that well-meaningness um, is only goes so far. You have to take a genuine step forward and, and some of that will be, uh, a large part of that will be power sharing. 
Um, and it's just something to, to, to think about really. Um, and I think that sharing of power will make people, um, I know from my experience, you know, feel like I have more agency and that I do belong in the space, uh, and, and, and valued, um, for, um, for who I am and, and my experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What would you say to organizers that want to make spaces, um, more welcoming to black, black culture, or just culture, people of culture in general, um, maybe it's not the current space, but like, what would be the suggestion of like, instead of just inviting someone into this space and, and making this person the test, right? What would be something that you would rather see or suggest? I think what I would rather see again is, you know, a true demonstration of uh, an, an, an effort to, to analyze your power or your organization's power, your group's power, um, like how you participate in um a racist system like do do that work and you know analyze it you know pay uh, you know pay someone to come in and help you with it <laughs> um you know you spend that spend that capital uh to spend that money to to do that before <laughs> inviting people into the space like show that you understand like um you know what might still be, you know, traumatizing and a genuine effort to dismantle things. Um, don't rely on, um, again, like the person to come in and, and change it for you. Mm -hmm. You know, do the work beforehand. Um, you know, till, till the soil, uh, if you will. Yeah, and pull the weeds, right? The Till weeds. the soil, pull the weeds, like get some of these base structural systems. Like I just, oh, I'm hearing what you're saying so, so loudly in. And you have, you have to understand that the history, I feel like a lot of, there's a few places where I've recognized and I've seen it. They're just like, oh God, this is how we made our money. Like we really did like, you know, displace, you know, like thousands of, Native Americans and, and families and communities and we got to do something about that actively first before we can really repair it you know those relationships like I've seen a few places do it but you really got to understand like your history um, your place in the system um, you can't ignore any of that it all has to be examined and I think people are afraid to do what they find out. Just like they're afraid to do their own genealogical research. They feel like they're going to find that they had a slave master in their family. Okay, you did. Good, now. you're right. Now? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's not bad. You know, it, you know, do it. Find out that history. It's important that we have those connections and understanding. There's, you know, then there can be like truth. And then hopefully working towards reconciliation, you know, that's, that's, that's gotta be a part of it, but that truth has to be a part of it. Exactly. Know? Right. And, and then the one thing that I'm like really kind of excited about and like really reading a lot about now is sort of this, um, 
this meta modernism. <laughs> um, so the idea of meta modernism and the the idea of the end of, the end of history, right? Because you know history is not like often not truth, <laughs> right? Um, history is is really the people who who wrote it down <laughs> a lot of times, and um, because uh, you know some cultures don't respect the oral tradition, uh, but history is that like people who wrote it down most often to uplift their their culture or, or who they who they are mm-hmm. um but that is not a truth you know right. and, and now it's the time for truth and not necessarily history mm. um so so beautiful yeah. now is a time for truth not necessarily yeah. history yeah I really like that because we don't even know the true history and, and black people's history is all of our history. And I know the more I learn, the more I love black people, you know, the more I'm just like, Jesus. Um, And I I say that with so much reverence in understanding the trauma healing process as well. Mm -hmm. You know, in the more I understand trauma healing, the more I understand what it means to come together and sing and hum and move pain and grief through the body and how, you know, cultures throughout time have done this through ritual and language and connection and community. And, you know, the, the white bodied supremacy system is to break that apart. And no matter how much we've broken that apart through white supremacist systems, you know, black culture and indigenous culture, you know, the ancestors just keep emerging up through and it's, Uh um, this is what I hear you saying. That's what it means to be in truth. Time. We're in the time of telling truth. Yeah. Um, because we don't even really know the real history. Right. Because it's been fabricated by those who were in positions of power. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well said. Well, well said. Well, in wrapping up, um, unless you have any more gems you want to drop for us, um, I will say, is there any last gem that you want to say about two well-meaning white people that may be listening. Oh, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's great to want to do the work, but again, I think there's something really wonderful about um, well-meaning white folks that will be willing to give up power and, and sit up, and listen and maybe not take up space to your point earlier. Maybe just not take up that space. Yeah. You know, and be, you know, be willing to follow, you know, yeah. in, in this work, I think that that's, that's it. And I'll add to life, be willing yeah. to follow in life, you in know, life, that, yeah. that perhaps in life, yes. it, perhaps in all of your whole history and in, in every identity you hold, be willing to ask, and be willing to consider that maybe all of it is false and mm. rooted in a very, very false fabricated story and to unroot, to kind of recognize that your identity is false is a hard one. So it is it not is. easy work. Yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely um, true. But it speaks to what you're talking about, about giving up of power, because actually white people are more hurt when we don't do this work than than anyone wants to admit, you know, we, we miss the loving connection and culture and 
and healing mm-hmm. that's possible that is happening in communities of culture by necessity because they've mm-hmm. only had each other and we can have a, that too but we have to be willing to get very very uncomfortable in recognizing what has and continues to take place and how we are responsible not in present day because we created the system but because our ancestors were a part of these systems and these structures and whether we recognize it or not our body memory remembers it remembers the atrocities that have happened to black and brown bodies that have happened to the land and and we're repeating it and our bodies remember it so some part of us is staying silent because we don't know how to face it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so before we wrap up you got a song you want to share i asked my guests to, to bring us a song yeah, I think I, I am going to do that song, Test Pilot. It's by TV on, TV on the radio. Okay, you want to introduce your song for us? Tell us the artist's name and, and uh, all of that. Great. Um, yeah, this is um, TV on the radio, and it's their song, Test Pilot, um, off their album, Seeds. Awesome. And here we go. Tried to keep it open, but I couldn't hold it. Smashed it down for all to see. And I tried to get repairs done. I couldn't fix it, so I picked it up and smashed it down for all to see. Well said. (laughs) Well said. Well, I can't thank you enough um, for the richness of your shares and for this, the heart that you bring to your life and for bringing it here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a total pleasure. This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations on Whiteness podcast, the untold stories of well-meaning white people. Please remember that dismantling whiteness is an everyday, all-day, lifelong endeavor. It does not end. It's a commitment to think, do, and live better than we've ever been expected to or allowed to before. Dismantling white body supremacy begins inside of you, inside of me, and inside of the collective we, in our personal commitment, in our own bodies, of culture, to grow the white experience beyond assumed supremacy. I thank you so much for your listening support. Uh, Please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast and share this podcast with a friend um, and encourage listening as a revolutionary act of our self and collective healing. Thank you so much, Damien Strange. We appreciate your time here and we'll talk again soon.